Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is my unedited conversation with applied philosopher and chess grandmaster Jonathan Rowson. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello. Hello. Is that Jonathan? Yeah. Hi there. I'm very sorry. I'm a little late. Oh, don't worry. That's okay. Good to meet you. So you to too. Speak. You too. <laughs> Are they still um, fiddling around? No, I'm, I'm yeah. free. I'm, Are you uh, ready? All oh. alone and yeah, oh. we're all set, I think. All alone. All right. Um, Chris, do you need some levels from us? All right. Uh, would you tell me something mundane like what you had what, yeah, how, how. <laughs> yeah, I was on the green line, the district line, mm-hmm. and about two stops from where I needed to change, it paused for about 10 minutes for no particular reason. And then um, we got changed to another line, and that train that I was expecting to get wasn't coming again for another 10 minutes. Yeah. And such is life, about 20 minutes went, went, went away. Yeah, I just spent um, a night in a city I did not have expect to spend a night in because of <laughs> mechanical airplane troubles. So <laughs> right, right. I know we're always so shocked when these things happen. And actually what's miraculous is how we just speed through space all the time and take yeah. it for granted most of the time. Um, yeah. Chris, do you need anything from me? Am I okay? All right, good. We can start. Now tell me this, Chris, do we have a hard stop at the other end or at our end? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so I, you know, I've been so intrigued by your work for a number of years, and I'm really glad that we're finally speaking. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Um, I also have a deep love of Scotland, and I doubt that we'll have time to talk about that. But it also inclines me to like you. <laughs> uh, that helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so let's just start. Um, I mean, one of the threads. Um, of your thought and perspective and work is um, the matter of, well, just using the word spiritual, kind of reasserting it, and then pondering like what it means, what it doesn't mean, mm-hmm. and our need for a, an intellectually robust and politically relevant vocabulary uh, use of this word, of this, of mm-hmm. this aspect of ourselves. And it, it makes me wonder, um, it makes me curious about... Um, you know where the roots if there are if you can identify kind of roots of that longing or that perception um mm. in your earliest life and and perhaps in whatever you would now look back and call the religious or spiritual background of your childhood how do you hmm. think about that well two things come to mind the i have a particular memory of childhood in mind um but the first thing to say to contextualize that is i think the sort of spiritual sensibility towards life is entirely natural um I think the, the there's no need to over-explain it. I think it's something that's sort of inherent in human nature. Um, but insofar as it's distinctive for each individual, the memory that comes to mind is I'm, a rough, I'm roughly 10 years old. I'm in a place called Westburn Park in Aberdeen, which is in the northeast of Scotland. 
and I'm alone and um, I'm trying to figure things out, but um, I've probably got a ball. It's, it's likely to be a white ball. I'm kicking it against a fence that's uh, next to a play park where younger children are playing. And I'm really just biding my time. And I think what was going on in my life at that moment were various things I had to make sense of. My, my father became mentally ill. My parents separated. And as a young person, I was just sort of thrown into making sense of it. Right. And in that context, I suppose I felt at some level held, um, not entirely, even when I was alone, I say I was alone because, precisely because I didn't really feel I was alone, mm. um, that I was at some more fundamental level looked after. And I think it began from there, that, that gave rise to a kind of, a willingness to introspect, to reflect, and those things gave rise to a fuller spiritual life later on. And um, were you, when did you start to play chess? Because it, it also feels like that shape has shaped you existentially. <laughs> no, it has, it yeah. has. And um, well, I was five years old when I learned the moves mm. and um, I played like any young schoolboy with friends and at school. But then around the period of time between maybe nine years old and about 13 years old, it really became a kind of passion and almost every waking hour that I could, I was trying to figure something out on a chessboard. And um, I think you don't need to be too much of a, an armchair psychotherapist to, to see a connection between a young child trying to make sense of the world and seek refuge yeah. um, and finding some sort of order right, in chess. And order. also, yeah, yeah. in a place yeah. where one can grow somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so, so these days you call yourself um, an applied philosopher. And my sense is that you've uh, I mean, you've, you've studied politics, philosophy, economics, mind, brain, and education. I mean, you've done many things. I'm, it seems like that's kind of a term you've come to at this point. And what does that hold for you, that, that language of applied philosophy? Well, the, the, the term philosopher means many things, perhaps too many things. But I, I think for most people, it, it intimates a kind of abstraction and a sort of distancing from the world. Yeah. And I think philosophy, more fully understood, is really a, a deeper engagement with the world. Um, so to add on the adjective applied, um, I don't always do that, but it's a way of trying to help people understand that what I'm doing is not just reflecting on the nature of time or the mind-body problem or some kind of analytical puzzle. I'm actually using certain forms of inquiry and mm, sort of the intellectual character, if you like, to, to make sense of the abiding problems of the world as we find it. So, and those are often of a broadly political nature. So the applied is really a way of saying it's philosophy as it's meant to be, um, mm. which is, is deeply engaged with the sort of main, main challenges of our time. Yeah, and so, so one of the ways you've spoken about your kind of driving passion and inquiry now is this... Uh, well, here's an observation you've made that that kind of that flows from that. Um, you know, that you said the societal challenge um, that you are that you are focused on the societal challenge we have become accustomed to ignoring, mm. and that is the inherent nature, meaning, and purpose of it all. That we do problems, we do policies, we do systems, but we don't we don't really even aspire to a grasp of the whole predicament. And I think to you know, and then I feel that that is you know, and then and then and then and that leads to an analysis of kind of this moment of crisis 
um, I, I mean, I think that's a word that's more readily on people's tongues now, kind of all kinds of people than perhaps in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And you make this observation that I also f- f- feel it feels so relevant to me, but I don't think we say this often enough, that that one thing that's different about our crisis is that you know, unlike the Cold War, which I lived through, you know, where it was very clear who the enemy was and what the risks were and what the stakes were, the nature of the crisis was clear. But part of our problem is is our inability to diagnose and articulate the character of the crisis, which which I feel is that grasp of the whole predicament that you're talking yes. about. Yeah, I think I think that's right. There's a, there's an intelligibility conundrum at the heart of our experience. It's we sort of sense something that we can't grasp, and I think what we sense is, on the one hand, the world has achieved a great deal, and we've developed formidably through technology and economic growth over many decades, such that fewer people are in poverty, people live longer. There, you know, there's lots to be celebrated. At the same time. The kind of confluence of existential threats, not least ecologically, mm. but also democracy, um, this you know fragmenting in a certain sense or weakening, um, inequality becoming sort of out of control, um, and then international relations problems relating to you know terrorism and then technology maybe overreaching in certain ways. So there's sort of a range of different threats to our bearings of who we are and what life's about. And in that context, um, we look back to, well, what do we have to hold on to? If if, If everything is a variable, what are the constants? And I think there... That leads a lot of people to look back towards certain traditions um, or bodies of practice or experience where people are saying, look, there is something about human nature and human experience as such that you can hold on to. There Mm -hmm. are spiritual perspectives on life which give you some kind of bearing in which to make sense of these problems. Um, So I think there is an ongoing challenge to make sense of what's happening. Um, And one way of looking at it Krista, I don't know if you'd agree, you probably heard from people who've spoken this way before, but um, one way to see it is that it's it's kind of like a new axial age. It's it's a period of time where, yeah. you know, there's such upheaval in, in the sort of economic and political spheres and yeah. technological and spheres. Let's just say, and the axial yeah. age was this, this handful of centuries, like second to sixth or eighth BCE. In which, um, well, why don't you describe how you how you, how you, well, you know, think about the you comparison? Could, you could you know? describe it as, as a sort of period of time around the Bronze Age where mm-hmm. technology developed in such a way and there was a certain amount of maybe um, places were changing because there were marketplaces emerging and technologies would make tribal warfare all the more deadly. Because, right. It was also you know, a very violent time. like Violent time. Yeah. And, and in that sort of space of massive upheaval in the sort of external world, people were obliged to sort of sort of almost recalibrate their sense of who they were. There was a sort of shift in consciousness at a, a global level. And this led to the sort of major religions all around the world. Um, there were changes in Buddhism, changes in Hinduism, changes in, you know, Christianity wasn't quite yet there, but classical philosophy gave rise to the sort of um, a range of ideas that led to Christianity. Yeah, well, the Hebrew prophets and yeah. the and Confucius, this was the lifetime, and also of Socrates and um, yeah. and, um, and, it, and the Buddha. <laughs> yeah, certainly. But, but what is so astonishing also about that period of time, because uh, that was also global, 
is how is that those were disconnected uh, cultures mm. and and uh, countries. Um, yeah, and and yet it does it does feel like something happened at a consciousness level because these very kindred and deep things happened around the same time. And my sense, and I think I'm not alone, is that something similar is going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. People are, are are experiencing a kind of waking up, and it's quite diffuse. It's often quite subtle. Um, you can't be sure if you're kidding yourself if it's happening. But there's a, a feeling of a sort of planetary immune response emerging hmm. um, in, in levels of awareness and attention that may give rise to some new way of seeing the world and seeing each other. And we don't quite know what it is yet, but th- my feeling is that something is emerging of that nature. I, I love that language of the planetary immune response. I, I absolutely do see that and hear it and observe it. And what I also observe is that the the people and places in which it's manifesting don't quite believe in it themselves because mm. it's, it's such a contrast to uh you know to what is coming to us as the official narrative of our time uh in yeah. big headlines and vibrant pictures and and real threats yeah i mean one of the challenges we have is just to imagine something other than the present uh we're, mm. we're so sort of thrown into daily news cycles that to actually step outside of them enough to imagine a different way of living um, where people had maybe, you know, we were a little bit more ecologically sane, so we weren't destroying our only planet. And we were, um, we had time for the people we wanted to have time for and time for the things we wanted to do. And yet we were still somehow economically viable and people could feed themselves and clothe themselves and so forth. Um, And we had things to look forward to in life. And, you know, it doesn't seem like such a lot to ask at some level. It feels like we ought to be able to organize ourselves in such a way that we can live these fuller lives. And yet to get there, we have to sort of step off the treadmill and the the kind of semiosphere around us that's telling us how to live. Um, mm-hmm. So we need to develop some kind of immunity to those those forces that are constantly telling us who we are and how we should live. Yeah, I, and, it, you know, who we are and how, how we should live... Um... You said a minute ago who we are, what life is about. Of course, these are the ancient questions, but they are they are questions that that we work out in an, that that have to have a place in interior life, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, not that that's disconnected from life in the world. And in fact, the point you're making is that it needs to be relevant to politics and society. Um, it's a challenge, though, right? You, I'm sure you know yourself that, it, that, 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 that many people who are very interested in, in spiritual life, broadly conceived, mm-hmm. um, they, they're quite happy to, to stay in that realm and, yeah. and, and think and speak and be in that place. And then those who are more interested in the political world, likewise, prefer to think in terms of questions of power and influence and so forth. And there are many who recognize that there is a deep connection between these worlds, but there aren't so many sort of institutional forms and right. and uh, cultural narratives that support their integration. Not only that, um, it's not modeled for us in any robust mm-hmm. way, right? And 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 I also think this is generational, because I I suspect that people listening to this conversation, the people you're in conversation with, um, who are younger, intuitively, this feels intuitively more natural. Yeah. Um, 
but the generation that is currently at the height of its power, which is you know leading our countries, um, leading our political parties, um, leading our institutions, that generation that kind of comes that's a twentieth century inheritance in which interior life was very much marginalized and made mm. optional and not nourished or encouraged or rewarded. I've certainly experienced that that sort of disjunct between generations in that for many uh, and broad brushstrokes here but people sort of in their 20s and 30s when I I speak of the spiritual and the political in the same sentence they they don't flinch and they sort of see exactly what I mean and those somewhat older want me to sort of clarify very precisely what I mean by my terms yeah right (laughs) Um, you know and they want want that to pin me down analytically so that I can't breathe yeah, I mean, so let's let's actually talk about the language of spiritual and spirituality, um, because for you, you acknowledge that this is well. For one thing, it's a word that we've made it awkward. Um, mm-hmm. We've used it awkwardly. It's been overdefined, underdefined, too vague, um, too particular. Um, but you, you know, so one of the things you've said is, uh, I, I like this language. Um, Learning how to look within, between, and beyond the challenges of our time. Hmm. is That is a challenge best characterized as spiritual. And you hmm. said life in its broadest, fullest, and deepest perspective. Um, talk to me. You know, if we're, we're talking obviously in part about our legacy from the Enlightenment, right? I just wanted mm-hmm. to think that we are so rational. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And we would just get more and more logical, um, and that would make everything better. Um, there's a there's a talk you gave um, on YouTube that I really, or it's on YouTube. I think it was at the RSA that I really liked, where you described mm-hmm. kind of th- th- three versions of what spiritual is that have come to us that get in the way of us developing this more fulsome uh, understanding and and just and living mm-hmm. with this. And so I, w- I wonder if you would go through this. There's, there's the spiritually uh, yeah. promiscuous, the religious diplomat, and the intellectual. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's so. There's there's a couple of things there. So there yeah. there's a taxonomy of different types of um, approaches. But the, I think what you're alluding to is while I was doing this. So what happened was I, I was in a relatively technocratic environment. I mean, yeah. so it was a very culturally alive space. But still, we're in the city of close to Westminster, and, and mostly it's about can we influence nearby policymakers to change you know, economic or social policy. So when I came along and said, let's do this project on spirituality, uh, at first it took a little bit of persuasion to, to get it through. But when finally I did, um, I had a lot of conversations with people along the way about what I was doing and why. And I was, to some extent, making it up as I went along. Mm. But I did have this conviction that we needed, I think somewhere in the in the book Spiritualize, I quote the poet Annie Dillard about, um, you know, giving giving voice to our own astonishment. And, yeah. and for me, my yeah. astonishment was, why are we not talking about this? You know, why is there any other question that is more important, which is, you know, the, the inherent meaning and purpose uh, and nature of life and how that informs the decisions we make at scale. Mm-hmm. It seemed that that question had been lost somewhere along the way and I wanted to sort of bring it back. And in the process of doing that, I came across three categories of people loosely and I described them as um, the spiritual swingers, um, I don't know if you use it, I'm assuming the word swinger means the same thing in the US that it means yeah. here, um, and the uh, religious diplomats and the intellectual assassins. So the spiritual swingers were those for whom anything spiritual is a great thing. You know, whether you want to do carry crystals in your pocket to keep some god of Mars at bay on the planet Jupiter or whatever it is, 
that's that's spiritual. That works for them, and they're happy with it. Uh, whether it's tarot cards or um, meditation or going to church, it was all one big good thing. Right. And so the spiritual swingers were up for it, no matter what you were talking about. And they would look at you with glee and excitement, and just they were right behind you, and, and happily so. Um, the religious diplomats were somewhat more cautious. They recognized that you were speaking a language very similar to theirs. And normally, they would welcome the fact you're bringing these deeper questions into public life. But there was also a slight reticence of where you, because you were promoting spirituality, were you by definition denigrating religion and saying that somehow you were going to supplant it or subsume it? And of course, we, we had no such intention, but um, that was one of the sort of reserves. And then finally, there were the intellectual assassins, and, and I sort of mentioned them in a sense a minute ago. Yeah. Um, they were the people who really wanted to define very quickly, what on earth are you talking about? Give me your analytical framing for this so I can tear it down. And I won't, therefore, I won't have to deal with the deep existential questions that you're raising as a result. And what I also realized is in the process of making that categorization, I kind of thought, hang on, I see a lot of myself in each of these categories. Hmm. That actually I was, you know, I have been very sort of free and easy with different spiritual pursuits over the years. I have gone back to religion sometimes hoping to belong again. And I've also got quite a trained intellect through many years at university that makes me very skeptical about lots of things. Yeah. So um, it was trying to make sense of that sort of conf those confluence of influences that give rise to a view of spirituality that was, I hope, sort of capacious enough, but also defined enough to be helpful. Um, that that notion or that idea, that that mode of being analytical is kind of I would also say the cultural default mode, right? In our official mm. places, um, there's something you say. I think this is a really really intriguing idea. You know, you say so. So there's this analytical mode with which we do things when we're being serious, mm -hmm. and it has to do with measurement and precision, and and its metrics are numbers, mm. um, and and yet you say the better part of us is struggling to be heard in public life. Hmm. Well, one, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a key source for this, um, which is Ian McGilchrist's work on, on um, different forms of attention that we pay to the world. Hmm. And as, before I did the Spirituality Project, I, I, uh, or maybe alongside it, I did an inquiry into uh, this particular understanding of the world. I think it's a profound viewpoint that needs to be considered at least. Um, now in, as I understand it, uh, within neuroscience, there was a period of time where people felt that the brain hemispheres were very different. And then there was a period of time where pop psychology got hold of that and sort of ran wild with it and yeah. started saying that your left brain was this and your right yeah. brain was that. And most of it was bogus. But what Ian did, uh, and he's become quite a good friend over the years, is that he stopped asking the question of what did the different hemispheres do, and instead he asked, "What are they like? You know, what are they? What, if you if you think of a person, you don't ask, you know, wh what exactly are they? You ask, what are they like? What is that? Mm. What is their character? What is their nature? What is their disposition?" And he found if you ask that very different philosophical question of the hemispheres, you get a very interesting pattern response. And what what happens really is that the left hemisphere is typically trying to narrow things down to a point. 
and and turn something in sort of denature something, turn it into an algorithm, turn it into something that is like something else, so that it can process it instrumentally. While the right hemisphere is more sort of broadly vigilant, trying to give context, trying to give specificity, individuality, and trying to see something more fully and more precisely in terms of what it actually is. And the reason this is relevant is that these two forms of attention, one that's sort of about focusing in and narrowing down, and one that's kind of backing up and seeing the bigger picture, Ian sort of tries to argue that this is playing out culturally, and that the period of time that we're in is one where that sort of narrowing of focus, metrics, everything being overanalyzed, people asking for evidence-based policy, people wanting to turn something into an algorithm so it can be put to scale. Right, right. This, this state of mind is, is very pervasive, right? Yeah. And, and what we've lost in that is the kind of broader pattern of attention that says, hang on, uh, what are we trying to do here? What is, the, what is the fuller context in which we're trying to make sense of things? Um, and of course, uh, that's a harder question to ask and answer because it, it requires soul searching and working together and lots of things which culturally are somewhat disempowered at the moment. Whereas the, the mode of operation that's a bit more analytical and precise and, and, and zooming in and trying to denature things, um, that has a certain amount of hegemonic power at the moment because mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the language of com computation yeah. and it's the language of, of you know, big tech um, and artificial intelligence. And so there is this, I think... And it's the language of the stock market, right? It's like the stock market, yeah, the exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think when I say the better part of us is struggling to be heard, there is that one reference, but I think it goes, more, it goes deeper than that. It's, it's really about, you know, always trying to have a sense of the deep automaticity in human nature, the fact that we are creatures of habit. And to say we're creatures of habit is not just the truism that we, we get stuck in our ways, but actually we function in order to create habits so that we can free up energy for other things. But we sort of forget that we do this. So we're, we're, we're not only um, creatures of habit in the sense that we have fam follow familiar patterns, but we're also habit-creating creatures. We actually try to make sort of niches for ourselves where we don't have to think too much. And convenience in some ways is mm. how that manifests. Mm. For things to be convenient is for them to be kind of syntonic with our habits. And the reason that matters is that for you know many things that are habitual and comfortable and convenient may not be that good for us and they may not be that good for each other and for the planet. And so we need to back out of that to sort of find the part of us that's a bit more free, a bit more considerate, um, to actually look more deeply at the, the habits that we're creating and ask if we can do better. And, and we're, we're at this interesting juncture also where, I mean, even the way you just described, the way we function, is, is based on a, a, real, a new insight we have into how our brains work, how our bodies work. How we how we how we function as creatures, you know why mm. why we became this way. Um, so even at the same time that we can um, describe things about ourselves that are part of the problem, there's some power in that knowledge, right, of being able to see ourselves. Yeah, I mean we are we are dis disclosing ourselves yeah. to ourselves at some level, um, and that's a combination of globalization and scientific knowledge. Um, and also maybe material affluence that, you know, having solved many, for, for many, in many places of the world, having mm -hmm. solved the major problems of survival, you move on to questions of, in theory at least, mm. you know, meaning and purpose and self-understanding. Um, 
So yeah. there is this period of time where we are doing this deep soul searching, or at least some some are. Mm. But I wonder, I, to be honest, there are times it fills me with hope and there are times when I'm not so sure it's going to work out that well because um, I know there's a saying that uh, enlightenment is your ego's biggest disappointment. And, and I always find that quite a useful okay, expression. Well, yeah, why? Why do you find well, that Well, re- the reason I say that is because mm-hmm. I think that the, the, the desire to know oneself, the desire to sort of, for self-understanding, um, it's often dri- driven not by a kind of humble um, sort of service spirit of trying to make sense of one's existence, but also more about, more like a kind of narcissistic identity project. Yeah, well. You know, and there's a risk that the motivation for self-knowledge has to be right too. Well, well, to me that, yeah, I mean also this this interior life and the a true desire for self-knowledge um, is a necessary complement to spirituality for spirituality not to, I mean, because, right, we, we talk so much about meditating and Right? I mean, this is the new thing, but you, you, you know, meditators can be the greatest of narcissists, right? This mm. is not um, in, 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 ju- just, there's more to this, to this, what did you say, our, our, the better part of us that is struggling to be heard in public life than, than uh, you know, it's not, it's not like these spiritual practices um, are any kind of are actually guarantee enlightenment. And I, I no, think that's far what from you're it. getting at, right? You're saying, yeah. what is this more? A- and that this more is absolutely relevant to our life together, that it it must play a greater role in the public realm. Yeah, so I mean, the language of spiritual sensibility helps, I think. But to be honest, for those who, f- for, who find even that language problematic... Another way to think of it is, is positive and negative freedom. So we've lived in a kind of liberal hegemony for a long time where the prevailing idea was that the public realm was for questions of sort of resource allocation and um, the private realm was, was where you figured out what was true and what was good and what was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And um, then kept it to yourself. <laughs> kept it to yourself. Yeah, yeah it was your business. You, yeah. could, you know, if you want to believe X, Y, and Z, fine, yeah. but do it, do it in your own room. Yeah, don't do where, it in public school. Don't it, do it in politics. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we've sort of, for a while, that's been kind of a given. But mm-hmm. I think people are coming to see that the other view of freedom, the, the idea that we sort of grow in freedom and that we have to cultivate freedom in a certain sense, and that, that we, have, we need freedom from our own nature to some degree. Because once you understand yourself more fully, you recognize that you have all these traits, that you are deeply influenced by other people, that you are profoundly automatic in nature, that you are very much embodied, that you're embedded in culture, that you're extended through technology, that you're not what you thought you were. And then freedom becomes discovering that, but also discovering what follows from it in terms of Putting, putting your values into virtues, turning your values into sort of embodied dispositions so that you can actually serve in the way you want to. Um, and, I, and I think there is, a, there is a pathway towards that, and it is a different view of freedom. It's, it's, it's not the conventional liberal view of freedom. It's a more, more religious view, actually. It's, this is a sort of path quality to life. Not freedom from, but freedom for. Freedom to. Mm-hmm. Freedom for yeah. or freedom to, yeah. 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 Um. Yeah, and it's interesting also um, that this, you know, just to just to make this picture more complex. I mean, as you say, that, that there has also been in modernity this idea, this this kind of assumption 
certainly in intellectual circles, that secularization was happening and would continue and and religion would, if not disappear, just become ever more consigned mm. to the private mm-hmm. sphere. And in some ways, I mean, religion, I mean, the way I see it is that religious institutions are in a state of great evolution and flux like every institution, right? Mm. I mean, it's like, it's like the Reformation is happening to everything now. So mm. what the form will be is not clear. And these very almost inherited identities that people that most people have had in most cultures around the world forever, you know, that's changing. However, as you point out, you know, it, it, the what is happening instead is not is 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 not is not what was predicted because because spiritual inquiry and these questions simply don't go away. It turns out that they are part of us. And you have this great quote. I mean, I've heard this before, but I saw you re-quote it. It was like being reminded of it from Julian Barnes. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and that, that the sacred and this longing for the sacred, and in fact, this longing for the, the, the deep things, the better part of us, that, that this, this part of the human endeavor tended uh, questioned, carried forward in time and community and ritual. Um, this is as as vibrant as ever before. Yeah, it certainly can be, and it's it's um it's there for for people to experience and engage with. Um, the challenge is that it's not perceived that way. Uh, at least not in the. the I know the, the context in the U.S. is a little different, but yeah. and the you know secularization is some way further on here and. Um, uh, for many, religion is still the old-fashioned thing that will gradually be, you know, become otios and, and disappear. But I believe some recent survey by Pew Research that says, you know, 90% of the world will identify as being religious by about 20, 2030, give or take. <laughs> and that's an extraordinary way of yeah. looking at it, you know. Like, religion is not going away. Far from yeah. it. It's actually, yeah. Yeah. it's it's the sort of secular atheist view that is somewhat irregular, mm-hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily because it's more, more advanced or more sophisticated. Mm. Um, it could be because it's it's missing something. Um, uh, what is that God? I don't know. That's maybe going too far. But um, I think at least we have to be less allergic to the language of mm-hmm. of religion, and and not you know I have a friend called Elizabeth Oldfield who, who speaks about the G bomb um, with with regard to God but I think a culture that can't use the word God without getting the heebie-jeebies has some serious problems you know like you should be able to just use the language without feeling that there's a sort of threat in the room yeah well um, and Elizabeth Oldfield is at, at Theos which is an yeah. uh, well, interesting institution in the UK I mean I, I think this Julian Barnes quote again is perfect I don't believe in God but I miss him and I feel like, I feel like the word God people can't get can't quite let go of um, you, um, but 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 I think the important point is what you're driving at when when you say we have to be able to talk about this, mm-hmm. and the words are all inadequate and the words are are awkward and they mean different things to different people. But we have to we have to be able to talk about this part of ourselves about what mm-hmm. this what it means. Uh, what have you said that to take a look at more deeply at what it means to be human when we have to have a more fulsome understanding of the human. Um, in order to grapple with life and society in the way mm-hmm. that we long to, I mean, that's what yeah. all this—that's what this is pointing at. It, it is, and I, and I think the the sort of preeminent uh, issue of our time is, you know, our only habitat is gradually being um, 
well, destroyed is maybe the right word. It's 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 losing its resilience. Um, fundamental ecosystems are breaking down, and most of this is happening because of human behavior. More precisely, right. human behavior driven by a certain economic model. Um, now, in that context, for your your average individual trying to make sense of human existence and spiritual life, the connection isn't obviously clear. But I do think many are at home being aware, for instance, of climate change. I believe there's currently a storm on in, Flor- in Florida yeah. as we speak, um, and I. I know that they'll be wondering, you know, what can I do? Um, this is happening, but it seems so much beyond me. The gap between a single person and this massive global challenge that isn't even simply human, it's sort of suprahuman and, and it's it's into the atmosphere and so forth. Then questions of, you know, perspective come into play, like getting things in their fullest, broadest and deepest perspective is necessary to actually feel this problem. You know, the, 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 the crisis of climate change in particular is a crisis of, of, of disconnection between the facts and the feelings. We mm. know something is true. We don't feel that it's true. We, can't, we don't live as if it's true. There is what you might call a kind of stealth denial. It's kind of a, we, we live as if we, we believed it. We, we speak as if we believed it. But it's not obvious from our behavior and the way we vote and what we campaign for mm. and how we talk that, that we, we accept this is a real problem. Um, and I think that is a, ultimately spiritual. And one, one way of looking at it, to, to give it a bit of definition, is, is you know, one of the key elements of spiritual life I looked for when I did the spirituality project. I was looking for kind of touchstones that, got, that would allow people from religious traditions, those who are not in any religious tradition but do feel are in some sense spiritual, and those who are maybe resolutely atheistic but still believe there's something meaningful about the language of the spiritual. And to get those people to find common cause, I, I decided there were four main touchstones that were useful, and they were love, death, self, and soul. Right. Um, now, we'll leave self and soul for a minute. We've already sort of touched on them to some extent, and love, of course, we can speak about, but but actually it's death in some ways that I think is most relevant here, because um, most religious traditions uh, confront the question of death. They, 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 you know, it's, it's central to the fact that you're a mortal being, that you have to consider how you're going to live with the one precious life that you have. And in the context of climate change, I think there's a very clear parallel between our, the denial of our deaths, the fact that we can't really confront this fact that we're going to die, and the, the sort of denial of, of this planetary emergency. I think the two are yeah. extremely closely linked, and yet figuring out in what way they're linked and how facing up to one might help us deal with the other is, I think, a shared endeavor. Mm. I'm... I'm also aware here, and I, I wonder if there are corollaries in the UK, you know, this, the, 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 the matter of, of speaking about death, of taking grief seriously as a life experience, um, of finding ways to share that with others as a communal experience. Um, there's a lot of things actually happening also in the, the kind of um, millennial realm Mm-hmm. Here, death cafes. There's a, there's a, really yeah. wonderful organization called the Dinner Party, which is just about gathering people, which is such an ancient thing, right? Around a right, meal, yeah, yeah, yeah. and actually acknowledging that loss has happened and letting that right. be in the room. I, yeah, I think it's really that those kind of approaches are extremely important, and the reason for that is that um, there is a lot of facile positivity around. I mean, you know, I think it's good yeah. to be positive. I think as far as we can be, we should strive to be um, positive. But I, I also think that there's a positivity that's kind of 
um, ignores all of the darkness in, in life. And there's one that sort of transcends and includes that. Um, and I think we need to get to the other side of things like grief and loss and death to live more fully. Um, so one, one parallel would be um, those who have lost a loved one will know there's a moment you can in intellectually grasp something. Um, uh, but you don't really feel it yet. You might be numb for a few mm -hmm. weeks or months. And then at some moment, you just get absolutely shattered and, and your whole existence feels it. And you maybe cry for many days and suddenly you're transformed as a result. And that's the difference between knowing something intellectually and knowing it emotionally. And my feeling is that that hasn't happened on climate change. Mm. There, there, there has been mm. the intellectual acceptance, but not yet the emotional acceptance. And in some ways, that emotional acceptance is quite a dark place. And mm -hmm. we may have to go through it rather than around it. This is so interesting, too, because um, so much of the hand-wringing that happens in the States, at least, is about, you know, the fight you know, like a climate change deniers, which mm. sometimes is a matter of language, and you know, there, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of that. But you're all, mm -hmm. you're talking about people <laughs> who may be using that language and and looking at the the facts, and yet there's a step we haven't taken that would actually allow us to grapple with this. I think so. I mean, there are those who who see that particular problem in very political terms. You know, it's about, for example, the fossil fuel industry, and right. and it's they're the target there. But I think um, it goes much more deep than that because I think our entire way of being, the sort of pattern of consumerism that we're locked, we're, we're sort of locked into, and we struggle to imagine a world beyond. I think that is related to our compulsive patterns of, you know, the, our automatic natures keep us going on. And I think until we have that kind of shock, until we have a kind of moment of repose and reprise where we sort of think more deeply about what's going on, uh, it's quite hard to transform anything. You can sort right. of tinker in certain ways. Um, while I was doing the project, the, the, one of the findings that I find most fascinating, and it's, it's really sort of uncanny, is, is what we call post-traumatic growth, which is basically when people have some kind of trauma, maybe they have a, a cancer diagnosis or they're in an accident where they just survived. And, you know, they often, there's a report of people turning their lives around, living a more intrinsically motivated life with, you know, relationships and experiences at their heart and trying to serve in a certain way. And they're asked, you know, why did, this, why did you change your life around? And people say, well, I, I suddenly realized I might have died. And the irony there, of course, is that, you know, we were, they already knew that, you know, yeah, in they theory. Were, they were definitely already going to die. Yeah, we, we should, you know, we should already have had that sort yeah. of moment of yeah. like, hang on, this is part of the curriculum already. Mm. But it's like, oh, we almost have to have that shock. Mm. Uh, and I think on many of our major problems, we haven't had that shock. And that's part of the problem. Um. And so, and love was the other piece of this. Remind me how love... Think talking about love, thinking about love fits to you together with this need for us to um, kind of allow the reality of death into our life together. I would say um, love is a very um, what's the word? I need to reach a word for love that hasn't been used before because all they all have. But all I, have. I would say love is a very helpful notion. Um, mm -hmm. It's helpful in the sense that you won't find many who will uh, reject it. Uh, love is welcome at every party. Um, you know, however strict one's temperament, love is sort of welcome and recognized as being real. And I think we're in a we're in a period of time intellectually where um, you know metaphysical views are are always treated with a degree of skepticism. You know, even 
practicing Christians and people in other religions, they may not necessarily um, show all their cards when, it, when you come to asking them what exactly do you believe in terms of the fabric of reality. But I think when you say, is love real? Is there a meaning, mm -hmm. is there a sense in which love has its own reality? And I think most would be inclined to say yes. There's something about the experience of love that is self-evidently true that it's not a sort of human construct like any other, but it's somehow deeply there in the fabric of reality. Um, I'm reminded of Rowan Williams, one of the sort of theologian philosophers in the UK, yes. used to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was asked for a quick definition of God, and he just said it's love and mathematics. <laughs> and, and I find that very useful because mm -hmm. I think that we can, you know, the mathematics is kind of the physics and the, the creation of the universe and so forth, but the love is the kind of purpose and, and mm. sort of holding pattern for it all. Um, so I would say that love is a, a way of bringing people together in shared concern. Um, but deeper than that, I think it's something about our rootedness in the world. It's about belonging to the world. Um, when you experience love, you feel very much at home. And I think that's mm -hmm. a pretty fundamental part of it. Yeah. Somewhere I think you said love is about trying to find your home in the world, which is such a wonderful way to think about it. You also gave me, uh, in your writing... Uh, a, a quote, uh, some words of Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr. about love, and I, there, there are other words of his that I quote all the time. I really was this. This one is important too. He said, he said, power properly understood is the strength required to bring about social, political, and economic change. One of the greatest, one of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as opposites, polar opposites. So that love is identified with the resignation of power and power with the denial of love. Now we've got to get this thing right. Power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Um, it is, and he said, speaking to our time, it is precisely this collision of immoral power with powerless morality which constitutes the major crisis of our time. Yeah. So powerful, and, so powerful. Yeah, beautiful, yeah. And here we are, what, 60, 70 years, 60 odd years later, and it's almost the same predicament. Yeah. Um, it's uh, ours to pick up, to to carry that through to a yeah. farther place. And, and, and then the challenge is a little bit like the one we mentioned earlier that, you know, the state of being in love is like, um, you know, welcoming and you're kind of vulnerable and you're happy to be together and then. Um, it feels like everything might work out. So a lot of the people who speak about the spiritual foundations for a new world will often speak in the language of love quite freely. Yeah. If only we could love each other, everything would be great. To which I would say that it's not all we need. You know, the, the Beatles line, all you need is love. It's not the whole story. You know, I think, yeah. I think love is um, very necessary, but not always entirely sufficient in the sense that um, there will always be work to be done and struggles to be endured. And I think questions of power are seen through a deeper lens they're, they're a manifestation of love um, you have to sort of turn them into part of the pattern of love but to get there you, you can't turn away from them, you, you need to mature into whatever problems of power you, you, you're living through at the time I think that word mature is important too because there's, there's quite a difference between a, a love that is mature and that kind of romantic, simplistic reality of love. You know, I, I was at a definitely I was yeah. at an um, event with a with a, a number of kind of many scholars um, a couple of years ago, actually in Australia, and I was kind of making this case for love being something that 
we need to we need to understand how it can be a public good, mm. and um, and that that would also change the way we you know define the word and use the word, and that we need to fill it with the connotations it has in life. Mm. And so 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 this um, scholarly person um, said to me, uh, "I'm really uncomfortable with." Um, using the word love. Of course, I like love, but it feels inadequate because don't we grow through disagreement? And I and he said thing, you know, a few things like that. We grow through disagreement. We grow through struggle. And I said, well, what you just described to me sounds like a mature, healthy love relationship. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the real deep loves have all that trouble in them and they work yeah. with it. No, certainly. I mean, there's a, there's a lovely quotation by Iris Murdoch mm. um, who says, love is the extremely difficult realization that something other than oneself is real. Mm. Yes. And I think that, that that's true. That's the heart of the matter. Love, you don't love, you know, in spite of people's difference, but because of them. Yeah. Um, so disagreement and love are, are by no means antithetical. No. So the way you talked about um, the ecological challenge and the, the human challenge implicit in that is um you know you have this book called spiritualize and so and so that's kind of the you know that that is how how you would you know I don't know if you would use this language but it feels like that's like that's spiritualizing the discussion the our our reckoning with with the ecology mm-hmm. um and I wanted I want to just um ask you about a couple of other areas um and how this lens would take them on so you know, the economy, <laughs> mm-hmm, economics. Mm-hmm. Someplace you said, maybe we can't reimagine the world without rethinking the economy and per- perhaps it's better not to be an economist to make that case. What is mm. the economy anyway? I frequently sense that there is no such thing. And I think a lot of us feel that way right now. Right. I we should call it out as far as, as often as possible. When, when mm-hmm. someone says the economy, what exactly are they yeah. talking about? Um, well, I think it's true, and, and I think this is no longer particularly controversial, that, that economic questions are too important to be left to economists because they're not, at their heart, sort of technical questions of, for, for a kind of scientific expertise. They deal with questions of, um, of, of how you make value judgments in the world. They're not just about accepting the underlying philosophical basis of economics, which is a kind of utilitarianism, which is a sort of notion that basically there is one kind of thing that everything ultimately reduces to, which is utility, which is what people value. And that, that, that that's kind of transparent. So people actually know what they want and they, ha- they can figure out how much they're willing to pay for it. And the economy right. revolves around that idea. Well, I think most of what we know psychologically questions that. And moreover, economists haven't done a particularly great job of keeping the world from economic crises or distributing income properly and so forth. Mm. Um, when it comes to the economy, though, th- more fundamentally, there's a lot of good new economic thinking out there. I'm, uh, I'm currently a, a fellow at a place called the Center for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity at the University of Surrey. Mm. And there, uh, Professor Tim Jackson is the lead, and they're trying to imagine what it would be like to have a viable economic model that didn't assume that economic growth was the be-all and end-all of it, that you had a, a way of doing the economy that was giving rise to different forms of human flourishing that weren't necessarily about material advancement. 
And what's great about the way that work's being done is that they're calling upon artists and philosophers and psychologists and people from various walks of life to actually help imagine what an economic system would look like that spoke to human value more broadly conceived. Um, and I think I think we look at the word itself. I believe you know ecology and economy. They have the same root of eco, which I think comes down to home. So mm, there's something right, about right. Uh, yeah. I think there's something about the idea of home at the heart of economics yeah. that we need to t- re- reclaim ownership of because it's our home too. You know, I think um, there is a place for econometric analysis, but it's not at the forefront of public life. It's 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 once you've made a lot of difficult decisions together collectively about who we are and what we're living for. At that point, we might want to figure out how we go about, um, you know, making the economic models work. But the economic models themselves are are very much a servant. They shouldn't become the master. Mm. Um, how would you um, apply this lens of spiritualizing to um, to what feels like a real crisis? Certainly, the challenge of uh, democracy that is unfolding. Hmm. Well, it's a really difficult one because um, I grew up, like many people in democratic countries, never having to question democracy, you know, always assuming that it was an entirely good thing. Um, And it was also implicitly a liberal democracy, although we never called it as such. And what that meant was it wasn't just um, a question of majority voting at election time. It was about a relationship with a set of institutions and a certain pattern of norms and the rule of law and a certain number of fundamental rights. And these things were all there implicitly and I didn't have to question them until much later in life. But now um, I think the heart of democracy means you know, rule of the people. Um, and the challenge there is that the notion of what that means is far from clear. Does it mean, um, what do we know of the people that would, that would make sense of them ruling? Um, are all the people the same? Um, in what sense is the capacity to rule the same? Um, when they come together, are there emergent properties from the people? So there's something inherently ambiguous about the primary injunction in democracy, um, rule of the people, and even for the people, by the people. I think the way we renew democracy is to recognize that people are not finished business. They're not, they're, they're, they're a lovely term in the Christian tradition, status via Taurus, you know, they're on the way to becoming. And mm. I think mm. if we bring the idea of becoming back into democracy, such that we recognize that there's a lifelong process of development for all of us, and that includes disagreeing better, includes doing pluralism better, it includes enhancing civic space so that we can actually be together more often, and, 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 and sort of minimizing the atomization of society such that we actually have a shared life again. Yeah. Um, and, and, and religion and spiritual practices have a role to play there because they, they wake you up to the reality of other people as well. Um, but I think at the heart of spiritualizing society would be a kind of renewed democracy in which part of the purpose of ruling to get ruling of the people for the people by the people was actually a richer conception of what it was to be a person um, yeah. and, and uh-huh. to build society around that notion. Yeah, it's something that occurred to me as I was reading you and preparing for this and maybe it's connected to your to the to the to the to the suggestion you're making which is which goes hand in hand with this uh, that we need to um, work with realities like death and grief and loss so is that right now 
right at the center, especially of Western democracies, is well, yeah, this uh, the, an, an incredible amount of trauma mm. that's been kind of hiding in plain sight. Mm. Um, racial, I mean, the, you know, the history of colonialism, the history of slavery, but but beyond that, um, uh, you know, trauma that has to do with um, the way we've done gender relationship, the the way power has been wielded, and uh, and I think, um, you know, maybe if I think about how you were talking about death a minute ago and how. In grieving, there's this moment where you feel it. You don't just know it; mm-hmm. you feel it. Mm-hmm. And it, and I think that certainly this reckoning with trauma, with all of our layers of trauma, is happening at different rates for different people. But to some extent, it's being felt. Mm-hmm. Um, but and yeah, you were saying that in a life that. That moment can open to transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, but I don't, you know, I don't think you get a guarantee that it's transformation. It's it's a it's a terrible, messy, painful, right? Because there's a moment where you just live with the open wound, and it yeah. feels right. It feels like you will not ever get past this. Mm-hmm. Well, well, what I hear when you say that is, I, I think of ritual actually, um, mm-hmm. because I think that much of the purpose of ritual was a kind of collective inquiry into some of these deeper and darker aspects of our nature as right. a way of sublimating them in certain ways. So when you have, when you take communion, for instance, you're remembering a horrific act at some level, yeah. but you're not really, you know, viscerally remembering it, but you're sort of acting out something happened, something really important happened, and we're honoring that now. And and the reason I think of that is because when you ask about democracy, um, in some ways, liberal democracy is the sort of thinnest kind of democracy there is because democracy being of the people, for the people, by the people, uh, you know, a fuller conception of being together, living together, working together, figuring things out together, it's a much, it's implicitly a sort of communal endeavor. Whereas liberal democracy pulls us in the other direction towards the individual. And in theory, those Mm. things are very well balanced and they sort of um, keep each other in check at some level. But I think what's happened is that as our lives have become more and more privatized, these forms of shared ritual, um, shared experience, shared practice, shared inquiry, um, disinterested inquiry, you know, not being, not having a partisan interest that you're trying to advance, but a kind of passionate disinterest where you really care about what's going on, but not from any particular vantage point. Right. You want to just, just really understand what's the know. common good here. You yeah. want to understand. I want to know here, what's yeah. the common good here? How do we understand this? How do we get all the voices in the room to help us make sense of this? But those spaces are closing. And what we're having instead is a kind of competitive team sport right. playing out as a kind of traumatic experience in public life. So I think it's something to do with... Um, the heart of democracy is an underdeveloped theory of human nature that we have to get back in touch with. Mm. Mm. I think that's so helpful. Thank you. Um, uh, you are a father of sons, is that correct? Mm. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. And they're pretty young. Yeah. yeah uh, one just turned three and uh, Vishnu is his name and Kailash is nine. You're in, yeah, you're in that very active child-rearing years. Um, how... All of these ways of thinking and seeing uh, that you live with uh, that are very 
grand in some ways. I mean, practical. But uh, um, I, I wonder. I wonder first of all how. You know how this changes the way you kind of move through the world, but also how. How with living with your children, you know how it works in both directions. How how you take this into how you're raising them, but also how living with them informs, you know this this grappling you're doing, this way you're thinking and evolving your thoughts. Right. So I mean, the way you describe that picture, there's someone missing, which is my wife Shiva, who's okay, the mother yeah. of the children. But I, but I I mentioned that because. Um, someone joked with me when I was becoming a father for the first time. They said, um, the real the real challenge for men when they become parents is not becoming a father, it's becoming the husband to a mother. Mm. And and I think that, that <laughs> although it's good. a joke, it's actually a deep joke. It's a very it's a very profound joke because your relationship with your partner changes no, fundamentally. It's right. It's right. Yeah. It's another and, one of um, these things we don't talk about. We don't talk about how parenting changes the relationship and completely so so as you paint that picture i mean and also um shiva my wife is hindu so she's brought that sort of richness of Mm. um the whole indian tradition into my life as well and 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 that's also in the children's lives and i think um one way to understand this is that i often look with some envy at friends of mine who are having time to go to public events in london or um you know going on spiritual retreat for two weeks and i'm they're doing the dishes or getting the kids to bed or changing a nappy or whatever, or a diaper, as you call it. Yeah. And um, I'm, uh, on the one hand, occasionally frustrated, and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to pretend that it's all grace and dignity. You know, there's quite a lot of um, apologizing along the way. Um, and But I think what it's done for me is it does get you out of your own head to some extent. You know, there are these other beings. They, they look at you with their big eyes and they are one of the things they're saying to you is, Daddy, get out of your head. You know, I'm here. Mm, yeah. You know, look at me. Be yeah. with me. Um, so I was joking with a friend. I'm trying to build an organization, but my three-year-old wants to build a train track. <laughs> and that's that's kind of part of my daily experience. So it's grounding, but it can be, you know, I wouldn't want to give it um, the wrong impression. It can be very exacting. And parenting is often exhausting. But, yeah, it's physically you know, exhausting. Physically exhausting. Mm-hmm. And, and also, the, the joy that comes through, I think there's a famous line in the, in the poetry of Halil Gibran and the Prophet about the deeper that um, sorrow carves into your being, the more joy it can contain. And mm-hmm. I sometimes think about that with children. It's not so much sorrow, but the more stress, the more exhaustion, the more worn down you become through your children, the more the moments of grace and beauty when they, they do something utterly delightful. Yeah. And it leaves you feeling proud and joyful, and and you know, you feel it all the more intensely for having gone through the the mill a bit to get there. Mm. Um, this made I I don't know if this is it's if this is a good question or not, but I I I, I wonder you you're Scottish. I know you live in London, right? But mm. you grew up in Aberdeen. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Um. So a couple summers ago, I took a sabbatical, and I I spent I ended up spending a lot of time on kind of edges of the West. Um, right. Which I had Western really, Isles, you mean? Or? Hmm? Sorry, the what? Western Isles? Yeah. Well I, well, I mean, in general, so I, well, actually, I had some time in, in Big Sur starting out, which is also another kind of edge of America. Ah, yeah, yeah, the West of the U.S. But okay, then, yeah, 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 but then also I was in, I spent some time in Northern Ireland and mm-hmm. way up high on the coast at Corrymeela and, mm-hmm. um, and ended up spending some time in Australia, which is another kind of edge of the West, I think. Yep, and yep. and then also spent a, a good month up um, on the 
in John O'Groats, so on the far wow. north coast yeah, yeah, of yeah, Scotland, yeah. which is what actually, actually I hadn't planned to be there, and that's where I landed, and it, it turned. But so, so I started thinking a lot, and in all of those places, I experienced. Uh, I mean, again, I know you're in London, and so this is not really true of London. But but um, I, I I did experience that at this moment where there's all this convulsion and. Oh, it just feels like you write terrible paralysis um, in mm. in the center of what where we used to look for how where we're going to be shown the way forward and led. That there is God, there's 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 a creativity, there's a freedom in places that are not quite so much in the spotlight. Um, and I just wondered if being Scots, if that's if that rings true to you. It does ring true. And, uh, you know, I think like many people who live in London and imagine the same as New York or any other big city is that you sort of think you're at the center of the universe and then you take a train for even just one hour, maybe a little more, and you find yourself in a place where you realize, hang on, this is just as real. And in some ways it's even more lively and fascinating. It's just, it's not as busy. And we often confuse busyness for reality. Um, And I, I certainly feel the time I spend in the wilds of Scotland, which is less and less, sadly, but um, I did grow up, you know, in, in relatively spacious places. Um, that you know, being being with nature and having more time to be alone or with smaller groups, it certainly changes your sensibility. It changes your sense of what matters and how to live. So, um, I, I don't know what one does with that knowledge. Only that when we have time to take vacations we often go to entertaining places or places where our, our days are filled with other things. Yeah. And I think yeah. to be somewhere with no agenda and not much going on is a great opportunity of sorts. Yeah. Well, um, we're we're drawing to a close. This has just been a terrific, um, really tremendous conversation. Um, I, I think I want to talk a little bit about hope as we mm-hmm. draw to a close. You also gave me this beautiful quotation of Václav Havel, which I know I heard years ago, but it was good to read it again in this moment, which I'm going to read mm-hmm. it now. You know, hope is a state of mind, not of the world. It is an orientation of the spirit and orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously heading for success, but rather an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands not just because it stands a chance to succeed. The more propitious the situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper the hope is. Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And of course he had lived through a, uh, just extraordinary complexity, right? And hardship. Those are hard-won words. Well, I mean, where do I start? I think with, with the question of hope, I mean, I think it's incumbent on anyone who would define their work as being in some sense about changing the world. Um, and that can be quite a hubristic notion, of course. But anyone who is trying to fashion better forms of living, um, they need some working theory of hope. 
And um, I like the definition of uh, Roberto Unger as well, which mm. says that hope is the visionary anticipation of a direction. So it's <laughs> it's not just so much about thinking things will be better, but actually sort of seeing a place that's worth going to and orienting your will mm. towards that. So when I, I quite recently created a new organization called Perspectiva, and the purpose of the organization in some ways is to paint a vision of the future and a pathway of getting there that does instill a certain amount of hope. And I think the only way we're going to do that is if we get better at linking together what we call systems, souls, and society. So complex systems, including the economy and politics and all that, the, the, the totality of our inner worlds, and then how we talk to each other and how we live together. And I think if we can get better and more nimble and more generous about how we move between those worlds, then the chance of creating a hope that makes sense for all of us is all the greater. Hmm. You, um, We haven't spoken about chess this whole time, and you are, of course, a chess grandmaster, and that's such an interesting thing about you that you bring together. And there's one place where I saw you drawing on a chess image. Um, Zugzwang? Is that, yes. is that how you say it? I mean, that's how you say yeah. it in Germany. Is that how chess people say it? Zugzwang, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we, we try to at least. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, would you talk about your, you know, not not just the word, yeah, but the experience of chess. I mean, I feel like you bring this together in a wonderful way with what political hope is and, 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 well, and this experience yeah. of chess. Yeah. So, so interestingly, I'm, I'm, I'm on, in the last few moments of finishing a book that will come out next year called um, The Moves That Matter and uh, the subtitle is The Chess Grandmaster on the Game of Life. So I've, I've had some time to think about okay. what, what this means. And one of the things that I think chess gives you is um, an appreciation for, for looking at the whole position that, that often in life um, we end up looking too zoomed in on one particular feature of the position. But chess gives you this disposition to try and see as far as possible what's going on in the state of the world as a whole. And the other thing it gives you is a fairly good sense of the opponent. The fact there's always this alternative narrative, this alternative story coming right back at you. And their reality is no less real than yours. Mm. And, and, and what it gives you as well is, um, rather than thinking of these big grand schemes of, of you know, how to think 100 moves, 100 moves or 100 years in advance, your main responsibility as a chess player is to play the, the best move in the position that's immediately in front of you. And obviously that has to be more or less visionary but still, it's good and circumspect just to realize that your primary responsibility is what do you do next mm. and how do you do that well. Mm. So uh, as, a, as far as possible, I try and keep that in mind as I go through life, not to get too far ahead of the next thing. Mm. And and it, in the in Zugzwang... Um it, it, so, it, so compulsion, the, yeah. Yeah, the way I understood that is where everybody feels stuck, right? There's yeah, no so, good move. <laughs> yeah, so so so, so as I understand it, is it's literally compulsion to move. And, it, and it, the reason it's relevant is that often you don't want to move. So uh, in most occasions in chess, to have the move would be a good thing and, yeah, and you can make yeah. good use of the opportunity. But there are some situations where you can only do harm in your move. And curiously, um, at the risk of being slightly political, some have described the situation in the UK uh, leaving the European Union right. as giving rise to a situation of Zugzwang. Right. So because there's you no often good get, move. Yeah, you get to a moment where it feels like you have to make a move, but nothing actually works. Right. Um, and then it gets more interesting. You get things like recipro reciprocal Zugzwang, where neither side can move without doing any harm. And then it's all about trying to get it so that your opponent has to move instead of you. And and this plays out in all sorts of political ways, too. Yeah. I think um, 
Someplace you said political hope depends on humanity not not being in Zugzwang, and and mm. it does. I mean that it is it is a wonderful metaphor for where we are now. I mean, because you you know said it's, you know the next move, but it's there's a lot of despair about. Um, well, well, well. You mentioned Havel saying something makes sense. I think that's the connection I see here. It's mm-hmm. that you make a move because it makes sense. You, you don't necessarily think it will lead to checkmate, but uh-huh. you you have a rationale and a and a feeling that it makes sense and that it matters, and you and you play it, and then you hope. In the same way with life, you know, you you need to do what what is in front of you. If that's washing the dishes, wash the dishes, but take the next step, and you know, you may find that what follows is all the better for that. Mm-hmm. If I just ask you kind of right now at this moment in your life and the life of the world, I mean, what what makes you despair and, and where are you finding hope? Where are you looking for hope? Hmm. Um, what makes me despair is shrillness. Um, and that comes from all sides of the political spectrum. So those who are so sure of what the problem is and it's often laced with projection. It's laced with not seeing our own complicity in certain forms of the problem. Um, whether that's attacking the current American administration or lamenting Britain's decision to leave the EU, or whether it's something more proximate, like complaining against all the bankers being terrible or all the you know political party that you dislike being terrible. Um, I find that very unhelpful. You know, I think there is a there is a time and a place for winning your battle, but but really hope comes from a deep recognition that we're in it together. You don't surrender your disagreements, you don't lose your values, you don't forget who you are, but you assume good faith and you try and build the world together best you can. If you reach a point where it becomes clear that the people you're hoping to cooperate with are not in good faith, then you can vigorously try and you know take a different strategy. But I think um, despair arises when we prematurely help ourselves to an understanding that is inadequate. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we need to work a bit harder to really understand more fully what's going on. And so when, when that combination of partial understanding with sort of moral certitude kicks in, I feel a certain sense of despair. Whereas when I feel hope is where there is a kind of discernment and a conviction um, about what's going on, but there's also an openness and a kind of generosity of spirit that defines it. Hmm. Any anything else you'd like to say? Anything you? Um, the only thing that that comes to mind is that I was asked uh, by the Open Society Foundations, which is a sort of massive global organization, yeah. to try and help them make sense of the global crisis in human rights as they saw it. And in the process of doing that, I again realized that um, a lot of it comes down to our working theory of what it is to be human. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that's not a new question. In some ways it's a bit glib because you know almost anyone can speak of that. But I think the real challenge is linking that question as a sort of living, breathing, unresolvable, perennial issue to a particular political predicament um, which may give rise in a particular place and time. So there's a person locked behind bars being tortured and it's a human rights abuse. And somehow sitting on the other side of the world at a desk, you're trying to make sense of some theoretical notion that you think in some way is connected to their plight. Now, I wrestle with that, whether really this 
kind of conceptual work that we do um, can really make a difference to people who are in need. And mm -hmm. I, I've come to the conclusion that it can. <laughs> you know, I've come to the conclusion that actually finding the right forms of language um, has real effects in the world. It changes conversations, which changes cultures, which changes practices. And I think those who are charged, charged with making sense of the world and feel called upon to do that should not despair that their work's irrelevant. I think I've come to believe that um, making, making the world clearer and looking at our foundations more fully can actually give, you know, give rise to real results for people who are suffering on a day-by-day -day basis. Is there any example that comes to mind in terms of language, a shift of language? That, um, yeah. One that comes to mind is um, climate change itself, actually. Yeah. Um, because I, I think uh, change is such a neutral term um, mm. that I, I now think in terms of um, climate collapse. I find it a more useful... Mm. I think climate emergency is too strong... I think climate breakdown makes it sound too mechanical. I think we're looking at a systemic collapse gradually unfolding in front of us. So you need to find a form of language that is heartfelt and true to the nature of the problem, but which isn't shrill and doesn't provoke a needless defensive reaction. So um, I think that given that that language is perpetuated and multiplied by a million and million plus times around the, the globe, finding the right form and the right reverberation of language um, really makes a difference in terms of how people feel it. Because mm -hmm. as I said earlier, mm -hmm. the, the main challenge on that particular issue is learning to feel it. So right. collapse, not change. Because our lungs collapse, financial systems collapse, and we collapse in exhaustion at the end of a difficult day. I think people can relate to that. So if we say the climate is collapsing, it's so much more evocative than to say it's merely changing. Mm. And it's it's less scientific and analytical, and as you say, it's more human, and it touches us in, as human human beings. I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I'm very grateful for uh, your 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 work out there and and how you think, and I'm so glad we had this conversation. I know our um, community of listeners will really take it and work with it. So thank no, you so well, much. Thank you, thank you, and, I, and then just to let you know that we are also. Um, also supported by Fetzer. Um, oh. So it's nice to have oh, that connection that. as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're recently helping us out. So um, it's nice to be part of that larger community as well. Oh. Okay, well, have a wonderful rest of your day and thank you so much. And we'll, we'll, well, thank we'll let you know what's happening with us. I'm not sure when we're putting it on the air. We're kind of backed up in production right now, but it will. Fine. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Thank Thanks you. a lot, Krista. Yeah. It's been lovely yeah. speaking to you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.